0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason.
1: Hello, Joni. Here we are.
0: Back Th- again. This is episode number seventy-eight. Awesome. I'm glad you're back in town. Me too,
1: me too. But it's always good to get away and see the family and do all the things that I actually appreciate in my sobriety. It's funny, when you're when you're addicted to drugs, all the things that should be important to you are not important to you. And it's literally a series of taking everything you could imagine for granted and including your family relationships. And it's kind of like you you don't know what you got until it's gone. Right. And when I was an addict and that relationship was not there, when I got clean, I've always done everything I could to put that back in because it's like I was thinking about this months ago about all the lost time that I had from my addiction. And so now I make every day and every trip and every phone call and everything really count. Because, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what you'll lose, but it's also amazing what you'll get back once you get clean.
0: Yep. And I think in many ways the relationship that, like former students at Narcanon or former addicts, wherever they went, I think what happens often is the relationships that were good prior to addiction right. can be even better because, because now they're valued more. And also, you, you know, based on a lot of the people that we've talked to so often – there were the one of the things that can lead to addiction is an inability to confront and communicate with the people around them that they care about and so that then you know drugs became a solution for that like oh i'll just tune out you know and go my own way before
1: my family dinner i need the two xanax and a shot
0: exactly (laughs) so so you figure then once the person's sober and they've addressed whatever reason it was that they couldn't confront and communicate with their loved ones in the first place, right. then it gets way better. Do you know? It,
1: it does get way better. And I constantly tell people, you know, my relationship with my family got better after I got clean than it was even before I did drugs. Right. There's always that kind of, what we had was like this failure to communicate with each other. And it 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 took my addiction and going through that to actually learn how to properly communicate confront and deal with other people to where I could forge a really, really, really good relationship with my parents. And you bring up an interesting point when you're talking about, you know, looking at the different relationships um, that you exist in, you know, as an addict. There's so many people that look at it like this. My parents and my family and my girlfriend, my wife, and all these other people who want me to get help actually are trying to harm me because they're trying to take away the very thing that I used to deal with life. That's what goes through your head. Now, the person you think is you know really has your best interest in mind is the drug dealer right you know, i used to think this i used to say you know i mean he's a good guy I mean, he wakes up early just to make sure i have what i need so i don't wake up and i'm not sick all day and stuff like that you know he'll even drive it over to my house if i don't feel good and then you know looking back on that i was like i actually was protecting my drug dealer as a and imposing him as a good person right um not saying he was a bad person he just his business decisions affected me and I was one of his best customers. I always joked that I probably put his kids through college. Wow, the amount of money I would spend with him. Um, and uh, you know, it it really takes getting your mind back together to really look at everything kind of the way it is. You know, I look at it like this: if you have an so a person has an ability to leave a, lead a good life, right, and then they become an addict, and then right. they have this, you know, addiction takeover, and they start with all of these you know, awful behaviors that you know, affect them, affect their family, affect their job and friends and everything else they're connected to. And what they lose sight of is the the fact that they still have that ability to lead a good life and to lead a productive life and things like that. It just gets, you know, shrouded um, by the drug addiction. Right. So I, I, one of the reasons I love Narcanon as much as I do is it helps restore those abilities back into a person that they either never realized they had didn't know they had or used to have that they no longer felt like they did. And so I think it's a really, really awesome thing that we're doing. And, you know, the other day I got a call from another family who listens to the podcast and, uh, you know, said in a time of need, it really helped them. And I'm, and I'm glad that you and I are here doing this every week, that in some people's times of need, we're there to kind of lend some sort of advice, um, good conversation, a nice viewpoint on uh addiction what we think the solutions are and the fact that it's actually helping people and people are really starting to reach in i think is fantastic
0: i think it's great and and i i agree and we you know the thing what we preach if you will is hope and to do something about it and you know that was the um the uh Recording I played last week when you were out of town, which was from the father, right? and he said, you know, your podcast helped my wife and I get through a very, very rough time Mm. when they were having to, you know, confront the fact that their son was an addict and get him into treatment and help him get through the treatment. Right. So it's nice to know that we help people. I think that is, I I think it's huge.
1: Yeah, that's always at the forefront of my mind when we're doing this, is that I'm doing this to help people, and I know you are too. Um, And speaking of which, okay, so we're mid-October, almost Mm -hmm. mid-October. Before we know it, it's going to be Halloween. And before we know that, after that, it's going to be Thanksgiving. And then before we know it, after that, it's going to be Christmas. So now is like the time of year where I like to start talking about, okay, if you're an addict, you're using, or, you have a, or you're a family, you have a family member that's you know, struggling with substance abuse. Like now is the time to get them into treatment and do something about their addiction so at least maybe you can have them for Christmas. Uh, each year before the holidays um, and into the holidays, there's always that excuse, uh, oh, I don't want to go to treatment because it's, thanksgiving and it's christmas i want to be there for aunt hazel because she's 97 and all this stuff and it's like or the family is saying we need him
0: here for aunt hazel well describe for us jason what the holidays are like with an addict in the house well for me i wasn't there and most
1: addicts that's the thing you have to understand is that just because it's the holidays the addict isn't going to just like hold it together spontaneously for a couple of days while the holidays go through and you know everyone can you know look good for appearances and that be that that's like that would be awesome if it's possible it's not possible it's not it's unlikely because when i was an addict and i was there for the holidays I just wasn't there. I would find a reason I need to get out of the house to, quote, unquote, go to the store or go to get coffee or something. And I'd be gone for four or five hours and come back loaded because what happens is is that the addict is not going to just get all the drugs that they need uh, for the holidays and everything's going to be fine as they go through it. Because if they did, one, they'd probably overdose. And two, the other thing is that do just... That doesn't happen like that. And so the addict is going to leave at some point to go get drugs and meet their dealer. And dealers are fashionably late all the time because they get to have that like sense of control on you. So they're like, I'll be there in 15 minutes and show up in three hours. They know you're going to sit there in that parking lot and wait because you've, they've got what you want. And so it's just going to turn into a whole mess. I've never been able to successfully personally get through the holidays as an addict without something occurring to where it turns into this huge family blowout and I know most other families are gonna deal with that so I always like to just like chirping people's ears a little bit and say hey look like okay get it go into treatment now and is the only thing I can see being logical is waiting you're either waiting for something bad to happen an overdose um and honestly, if you die from the overdose, it doesn't get worse than that because then you have no opportunity to get clean. There should be no waiting period, especially if this person is using opiates, and even if they're not using opiates, even if, even if they're using cocaine or meth or even weed, they're finding fentanyl in everything. I just read another thing. Uh, I can't remember what newspaper it came out of. But they said, you know, local f- officials are concerned about fentanyl being found in, in uh, samples of marijuana in right. a certain area. And then you've got the pe- and people who say, well, if you burn marijuana with fentanyl on it, it's not going to work. And it's like, ir- irregardless, I don't care. That's not what I'm arguing. Right. What I'm saying is they're finding fentanyl in everything. So n- there's no, like, good time to go to treatment. It's never convenient um, for anybody. And it's never a good time. You just need to do it because the other op- option is fights, arguments, chaos, upset, grief, sadness, fighting, and possibly death.
0: And so here's, the, here's my question for the loved ones of people who are addicted, who are listening to this podcast. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? To have the person there when they're not really going to be there anyway, and it's just going to be a problem. Okay, if you send them to rehab, there's a possibility they won't be there Christmas morning helping open presents under the tree, but the chances are they wouldn't be there anyway.
1: No, if you've got a if you've got a heroin addicted child or parent, the quintessential you know all American open presents and on Christmas morning everyone's together and happy and taking. Uh, you know, photos. It's going to go above the fire. It's not realistic. It's not real. Exactly. A heroin addict, a drug addict. It's. A, it's. A, they're an addict. They're going to act like an addict. They're not going. to Don't expect them to just like act a, like appropriately because it's Christmas. Because, because it doesn't matter.
0: Because drugs know no holidays. No. Drugs are not going to take a holiday and go. Oh, it's Christmas. Okay, so we're not going to. We're not going to affect people today.
1: No. The best case scenario is that the addict stays in their room away from everybody else and doesn't cause harm to the whole thing.
0: And if they're going to do that, why not just put them in treatment?
1: Exactly. Because the thought and and for the addict that might be listening, you and I both know you're not going to stay sober during the holidays because you're not going to put yourself through withdrawal.
0: Exactly. Or
1: you're not going to let yourself come down or any of those things. And so I just want to start putting in people's minds that, okay, yes, the holidays are coming, but if you want to have a really good Christmas start now you might be done by christmas and then have
0: and even a great
1: if, and then have a wonderful christmas and everyone's together
0: and even if not i mean even if you put your loved one into some sort of treatment or you as the addict you go into some sort of treatment and you're not done by christmas it's okay everybody's still gonna have a much better holiday because they know you're getting help you know you're getting help you know you're getting better You got to think about it now. Hey, I want to talk about the guy we're going to interview today because I'm super duper excited. So today we're going to interview Michael DeLeon and he is a successful acclimated ex-offender who after nearly eight years of drug addiction and gang involvement spent 12 years in state prison and halfway houses for a gang related homicide. Since his release from prison, he's earned three associate degrees, a baccalaureate degree in business management with a minor in criminal justice, and a CADC educational certificate. Certified addiction something, I think.
1: Certified alcohol and No, cert...
0: C-A-D-C. We'll ask him what it is. Anyway, he's now in the process of obtaining his master's degree in social work at Liberty University School of Social Work, as well as pursuing his L-C-A-D-C.
1: Certified Alcohol and Drug Counselor.
0: Perfect. Okay. So he is on a mission, and he's on a mission to educate youth to stay in the right direction when it comes to serious life issues, especially drugs. He's the founder and powerhouse behind Steered Straight which is a nonprofit organization formed in 2000 and designed to carry an important message to youth on the extreme dangers of drugs, gang involvement, and associated criminal activity. So he goes around and he talks at schools, and get, he's also got a bunch of people who do that as well. He's also There's a media arm of Steer Straight called Stay in Your Lane Media. It was founded by Michael in 2012 and has produced four award-winning documentaries, wow. Kids Are Dying, an American Epidemic, Marijuana X, and Road to Recovery. His fifth documentary, Higher Power, is currently in post-production. He founded a project, kind of a subsidiary of Steered Straight, called the Recovery Army. And Recovery Army's mission is to recruit everyone to wage war on this pandemic of addiction he tours the country in a recovery army tour bus visiting communities with educational resources films and books he visits schools prisons jails treatment centers churches and community organizations and he addresses each group with catered messages and presentations so f- he's been to 47 states talking to all of these different groups and schools i'm super excited to mm-hmm. have him on the podcast and we'll get him to tell our stories so Let's get him on the phone. So, thank you, Michael, so much for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate you taking the time because I happen to know that you are a super busy guy.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm super busy, that's for sure.
0: So, typically, the way we start this out, Michael, is to first, you have your own history with drugs. How did you get started on drugs? How did that happen?
2: Um, well, my first drug was um, uh, amphetamines, and they were sold in stores, 7-Eleven truck stops all across the country. A lot of people don't remember. Um, 89 to 94, the Chinese were importing amphetamines into this country, and they were selling them as caffeine pills. So the caffeine pills that exist today, they're all over the country, obviously. They're in you know stores uh, everywhere, but they're actually they have some weird ingredients, but there's caffeine. Um, in the uh, late nine, late 80s and early 90s, uh, they were selling amphetamines in the store, Fen-Fan, Ephedra. The FDA banned uh, 44 ingredients in 1994. But uh, I was introduced to these pills um, by a, uh, a truck feeder driver. I was running a Small package delivery business regionally in the southeast. Sixteen terminals, over 400 employees, uh, and we were um, in the warehouse one night, and I was dragging. I was tired, and he just gave me one of those pills, and you know, I said, oh, this is the greatest thing in the world." And uh, instead of taking that one pill, and you know, maybe one a day, or you know, what have you, take them as you know here and there, I was eating them like candy. Uh, I was eating about 100 a day. Wow, 100 a day, and I started having. Drug-induced grand mal seizures. Um, I had a seizure driving my car uh, back from a huge appointment in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, I went into a seizure driving my car, and at 120 miles an hour, I went into the truck weigh station on the North South Carolina state line. A trooper clocked me at 120 entering that way station in a full-blown seizure, and um, I was sheared 20 trees and went through the windshield, and he peeled me off the hood of the car, um, and pumped my chest for six and a half minutes because I wasn't breathing. And uh, paramedics got there six and a half minutes. They brought me back to life, and they airlifted me to Charlotte Memorial Hospital, where I flatlined in the middle of surgery. And I was brought back a second time, and they life-flighted me to Raleigh, Durham Medical Center. Um, I flatlined again, and they induced me into a coma. I guess so I would quit dying on them. But um, I say I was in ICU for nine days. Uh, I was in ICU for a couple of weeks, but I was in a coma basically for nine days. And they told my wife I most likely wouldn't wake up. And wow. nine days later, she's sitting at the side of my bed, and I uh, opened my eyes. And um,
0: how old were you, Michael?
2: Twenty in my mid twenties. I mean, ninety percent of addiction begins between the ages of eleven and eighteen. Right. I was the atypical one out of ten. You know, I was the guy who. You know, I was in my mid-20s at that time, 24 uh, and 25, and, um, you know, I never did drugs, really. I mean, I drank a little bit here and there. It wasn't my thing. I smoked a little bit of weed here and there. It wasn't my thing. It just wasn't, you know. And um, I just, you know, I have to say that, you know, in full transparency, to be honest, because a lot of people say, well, I never did drugs before. I, well, I mean, I never really did a lot of drugs and never had problems with it. But I did consume alcohol, and it wasn't a thing. Consume marijuana wasn't a thing. But when those amphetamines went in my body, it was different. And uh, nine weeks I was in the hospital, nine weeks. Wow. And uh, I was released, and on the way home from the hospital, I had my wife pull into the truck stop so I could pick up some more caffeine pills and get back to work. You know, a normal person wouldn't do such a thing. I didn't learn my lesson the day walking out of the hospital. I went back to the truck stop and picked up some more caffeine pills and went right back to work in the morning. And the following day, my best friend um, looked at all the empty wrappers of caffeine pills I had on my desk and just said to me, you know, those things aren't good for you, man. They're going to kill you. You need cocaine. And I said, what? He says, yeah, man, coke, it's better, you know you want to work all the time, stay awake, you don't need caffeine pills, you need cocaine. And he put a line of cocaine down on my desk, again, in my mid-twenties, I should have known better. So I started this, I started this line of cocaine, uh, and I thought it was the Holy Grail, I thought it was the answer to my prayers. I, I literally thought this was the greatest thing that ever came into my life, and all those, you know, D.A.R.E. programs, and Truth About, Dr- I, I mean, uh all those dare, all those dare programs and Nancy Reagan saying just say no and it wasn't it it didn't register none of it registered because uh you know this is cocaine and I need something to keep me up and it wasn't dirty person doing drugs and I wasn't going to be addicted I mean that wasn't going to be my story and and nothing uh no cautionary tale no education no prevention nothing. Was registering in my mind. I went from, I went from snorting cocaine uh, every couple of days to snorting and smoking cocaine on a daily basis, and I went uh, to shooting cocaine within weeks, and then I was shooting heroin and cocaine. So I was a full-blown intravenous heroin and cocaine user, trying to maintain a life running a multi-million-dollar corporation, and you know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that didn't work, and. I lost everything. I literally lost everything. Uh, My partners bought me out. Um, They offered me help and treatment, but I refused to go. And I um, literally lost everything. And I was completely penniless, living in uh, Lake Norman, North Carolina, north of Charlotte, where our office and distribution center was. And um, I was in a house that was getting foreclosed on, and um, I had nothing left. So I decided... Um, that I needed a geographical relocation. I needed to leave North Carolina, where all the drugs were, and go somewhere where there was just no drugs. And I just asked myself, where can I go where there's no drugs? And I said, yeah, New Jersey. You know, no <laughs> so drugs in New Jersey. I'll just go. I'll just go to New Jersey and um, really, there's and no drugs in New fine. Jersey, so Michael. We live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what an addict tells himself. I mean. You know, my father used to say, you could tell Michael's lying when his lips are moving. Um, You know, addicts lie. That's what addicts do. And we can, you know, we can talk about stigma and we can say, oh, they're just, you know, the disease of the brain and blah, 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 blah. Listen. Listen. Addicts hurt people, addicts hurt themselves the most, Um, addicts disappoint people, addicts lie. And when you're in the middle of your addiction, uh, whether you want to call it a disease or not, and I never get into that debate, you're making really bad choices. And those choices lead to destruction. And uh, my choices led to utter destruction for me and everybody around me. So I came back to New Jersey. My uncle said he'd give me a job and I could restart my life. And the day I got here, as my wife was unpacking our boxes... I told her I would be back in 15 minutes. I was going to run and get something to drink for her and the kids. And I went down to the convenience store, and then I just looked out of the parking lot as I was about to turn left to go home, and I saw the skyline to Newark, New Jersey. And I said to myself, I heard they had good drugs down there. And I literally told myself I would just run down, get some drugs, get high real quick, and get on home. It was going to be a one-shot deal. I was just going to go get high real quick and get on home before the sandwiches got cold. And um, I headed down to get high, and I came home three days later. And my uh, wife was sitting there for three days. This is 1994, so there's no cell phones. There's There's no phone in the house we just rented. She doesn't know a soul doesn't know the next door neighbor and i just disappear for three days and um with the kids in the house my wife lonely alone no food i'm gone for three days and i come home and she just looks at me incredulously begging me crying please why you said that this was a fresh start and i just uh shook her off and went to bed and i woke up at two o'clock in the morning and I came out of the living room and she's lying on the sofa with the kids wrapped around her. And I snuck out the back door and went and got high again. And, um, my, you know, drug use was out of control instantly. And I was running around. I was, got involved with a gang, a gang in Newark, New Jersey. I was involved in a gang. Um, and it's, you know, I laughed because it's 1994. I'm as Caucasian as they come. And, uh, you know, people who look like me didn't join gangs. And, uh, I, didn't fit a profile and that's what was so appealing about me um these guys saw me and looked and figured i could do things that wouldn't bring a lot of attention and they were right because i was running kilos out of the ports of newark and port elizabeth down into the cities of patterson and newark new jersey i was an out of control drug addict distribution uh runner um, gang member and um i was at the end of my ropes. My wife finally came to her senses and left me, took the kids and left. And I was basically homeless. I was kicked out of the apartment because we were so far behind on the rent, and I was living in my car for a couple of days. And, you know, I was too good for that, out of control, drug addict gang member living in his car that was beneath me. So I had nowhere else to go, and I called my 63-year-old mother, who just retired as a nurse and sold her big house, and moved into a small condo apartment and in my full-blown addiction twenty six twenty seven years of age i call my mother and ask her if i can move in with her and god bless her she said you know come on home and uh... she had no idea what she was um, getting herself into she had no idea how bad it was she the last thing a parent wants to believe is that their child is a heroin addict and so in the uh... apartment i go for five weeks and Uh, I was involved in this drug deal that went pretty sour. It went really bad, and some people got shot, and drugs and money went missing. So I took off on a three-day drug binge just to lay low and let things die down. And uh, two people came looking for me uh, because I was being held responsible for what happened. And um, I wasn't home. And when I came home three days later, I found my 63-year-old mother strangled and killed on her bedroom floor. That was May 13th, 1995, uh, 7.20 in the morning, which also happened to have been Mother's Day. So my 63-year-old mother was strangled and murdered on Mother's Day morning, and that was supposed to be me. Um, uh, I can't even, you know, say strongly enough, my life was about to change in a big way, in a very big way. I'm so
0: sorry, Michael.
2: So that's something I get to live with the rest of my life, and you know we have a lot of we have a public social health crisis in America, the worst addiction crisis America's ever seen. It's going to get much worse, much much worse. I've been screaming at the top of my head for twelve years since I uh, you know got out of prison. I went to prison, and um,
0: didn't didn't you get arrested for um, Um, didn't you get arrested for killing your mom? Even though I mean you didn't.
2: So. I mean, it's, um, the I called 911, they showed up, the uh, ambulance showed up, you know, the uh, coroner came and, you know, took my mom away, and uh, my family was called in, and we were, you know, c- coming together was, as a family does when there's a death, I mean, I you have to do all the things in you know, a funeral parlor, and, and uh, services, and let everybody know, and make arrangements, and put the obituary in the paper, I mean, you know, everybody was coming together. To um, do what families need to do, and the autopsy revealed that my mother died of asphyxiation. She was strangled to death, and so they came over to the house. It was seven o'clock that night that we found her. Um, I must have had forty people in the house. My mom was very famous in New Jersey; she ran the largest nursing union in the state before she retired, and she was county committee woman and must have been forty fifty people in the house with cast rolls and Um, There was a knock on the door at 7 o'clock that night, and it was the prosecutor's office and detectives who were walking in, letting us know that my mother died of strangulation. And so um, the attention uh, immediately set on me. I mean, they looked at me. They knew I was a drug addict, and they asked if I would go down for questioning. And so in complete and utter shock, I went to the Rockaway Township Police Department and sat left in that little room with the table and three chairs, and uh, I started talking and cooperating with these two detectives. I gave up everybody I could. I told on everybody I could. I told on every crime I was committed, I, I involved in. I was visited by 16 different police jurisdictions that night uh, because every time I would admit to a crime, trying to find out if they came or if that was them or if this, this person did that, They would call that jurisdiction, and that jurisdiction would come investigate and ask me questions. I mean, I literally had 16 different police detectives come question me over a 14-hour time period, and they started calling all their confidential informants in the gang that I was involved in, and nobody could understand why I would have been the subject of a gang hit. I mean, I wasn't that important, you know? I wasn't a leader, a cartel leader, a kingpin. They didn't understand how I was that important to have been the subject of a gang hit. Why would they have hit my mother? And so two detectives, really, from the Morris County Prosecutor's Office, Morris County, New Jersey, in all this investigation over a night and you know, in a day, uh, 14 hours, they just decided that it must have been me. I must have been the one that snapped in some sort of drug rage and strangled and killed my mother. So they went to three different judges to get arrest warrants, three. And all three judges turned him down. There was no probable cause. There was no evidence. There was no nothing. There was no nothing. There was just a theory from two detectives who didn't have anybody else to point to because nobody could buy the the gang stories. Even though I was being investigated for all these crimes that I admitted to committing, I was just a drug addict in their mind. So they put together a grand jury, and they indicted me. They returned an indictment. Three people testified before the grand jury. The medical examiner, the cop that was first on the scene, and then one of the detectives that put the whole case together in his mind. And there's an old expression that you can indict a ham sandwich. Well, you can. And they returned a sealed indictment on me. And I was arrested wow. for the first-degree murder of my mother. And I'll never forget it, six, seven days after my mother's body was found uh, two, one day after her funeral... Um I was picked up and arrested and the following morning I was on the front page of the New York Times, handcuffed in full color, walking across my front lawn, and the headline reads, Son arrested for Mother's Day Murder.
0: You are listening to the addiction podcast Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, find our Facebook page and reach out to us there. For more information on Narcanon on Coast, you can call one eight seven seven three three nine three three two four. 339 3324 That's one eight seven seven three three nine three three two four. 339
2: 3324 Yeah, that was the second worst day of my life. And, uh, The following morning, I was uh, in the intake unit of the Morris County Jail, and the corrections officer thought it would be real funny to throw the front page of the New York Times in there on the tier so everybody could read it. And the Mother's Day murder on the tier didn't fare very well for a couple of days. And uh, I spent 22 months in the county jail, charged with a crime I did not commit. Now, one I'm 100% responsible for, and I'll go to my grave saying that, I'm 100% responsible for the murder of my mother, but I didn't do it. Right. And so now here I am charged with a crime that, you know, I can't even imagine. And uh, 22 months I'm sitting in a county jail. And in the middle of jury selection, because I was going to trial in the middle of jury selection, uh, my lawyer came at me with a plea bargain. Right before trial had started, I took a polygraph exam for my lawyer and I passed it. He thought i beat that test. He thought I was such a pathological liar. I was so good that I must have beat a lie detector test. So he gave me a second one, and I passed that too. I took one for the state of New Jersey, a third one, and I passed it. I passed three lie detector tests, um, and my lawyer negotiated a plea bargain for five years in prison for first-degree murder. Uh, that's impossible. It's outside of the sentencing guidelines. The minimum at the time in New Jersey that you could get for an aggravated manslaughter was 30 years with a 15-year parole bar. And he got a five-year deal for me with a release on five years probation. Wow. And everywhere I go I share my story and talk to kids and inmates in prisons and jails and clients and treatment centers and conferences and law enforcement and, you know, clergy and educators and parents. It's hard for people to understand why somebody would plead guilty to the first-degree murder of their own mother. But when you're facing a jury and, and, and a consequence of 30 to life, and you have a piece of paper sitting in front of you that you're guaranteed to release in three more years for a total of five, I don't know anybody that would, you know, take a chance and roll the dice. Maybe somebody would. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't. I was scared. Um, I had nobody to point to. My case was never investigated. Not a single gang member was ever talked to, investigated. These detectives just figured out the junkie did it. And that's what they put together. So I sat in that conference room, and I signed a plea bargain for uh, five years in prison. And uh, off I go to prison. And three years later, five total years, uh, I was released on five years probation. And ten months home from prison— I was in a violent car accident with my wife and um, I broke my neck. I had three cervical vertebrae in my neck that were cracked and I was in traction at the hospital and they told me I needed neck surgery. So <laughs> um, they released me with a chest, shoulder and neck brace until surgery could be scheduled and I walked out of the hospital with seven different medications, Fioricet, Vioxx, Galaxin, Mobic, Neurontin. Uh, Xanax, and a bottle of 360, 80 milligram Oxycontin.
0: Wow. Ooh. Wow.
2: So, I'm a heroin addict, and you <laughs> hand me a bottle of 360, 80 oxys, and <laughs> anyone with any kind of knowledge of addiction, of opioids, of the epidemic we're in the middle of right now in our country, it didn't take long before I had a heroin needle back in my arm, cocaine back in my arm, And uh, I was out of control again. And I had my probation violated uh, because of my doctor shopping and my addiction. And I was sentenced back to 20 years in prison. Wow. And I did almost seven more years of that 20-year sentence. So instead of taking a five-year gift, I turned it into a 12-year nightmare. And 12 years total time, about six and a half years after I was violated and sent back to prison, I was released from prison, and that was the beginning of 2007, and that was the beginning of my mission, uh, because I was released from prison, and this time I developed a relationship with God, I understood my underlying issues, I dealt with my trauma, sexual abuse as a kid, I faced all my demons, and I realized that I can't do drugs, and I can't drink alcohol, and I have to be... Uh, you know, I have to embrace my purpose. And my purpose, I'm convinced, is educating people, families, communities, kids, about addiction and trying to help people who are struggling with addiction find hope. So different programs um, that uh, I believe work um, are great. Different tools that we're using across the country are fine. But if we don't deal with prevention, If we don't get to these kids and educate them about drugs early on, they're getting educated by for-profit industries that are hell-bent on profits from addicting them, the tobacco industry, the marijuana industry, the alcohol industry. These kids are being set up. And although it wasn't my story, I was the atypical guy who didn't uh, become addicted, you know, between the age of 11 and 18, but I'm 1 out of ten. Nine out of 10 developed their addiction between the age of 11 and 18, with three gateway drugs, alcohol, nicotine, and marijuana. And that's the three industries that are targeting the youth of America, the youth of the world. And then that leads to the other problems with illicit drugs, cocaine, meth, and heroin. So... I wish I listened to my mother, and I would have been an expert in something else, but I didn't listen to my mother. Uh, So I'm an expert on addiction. I'm an expert on addiction. I'm an expert on relapse. I'm an expert on recidivism. I'm an expert on failing my uh, God, my wife, my kids, um, my community. Well, in 2007, when I was driving down the road to the main road of the prison, my wife was in the parking lot to pick me up. She waited 12 years total time of me incarcerated to, you know, be a wife. And uh, she was in the parking lot to pick me up when I came out of the prison. And I'm in the passenger seat. She's driving us home. We're driving down the main road uh, of the prison. And um, it was a beautiful blue sky, scattered clouds out. And I look in the side view mirror, and behind me is the prison and the guard tower and the barbed wire and... The sky over the prism was even darker than it was ahead. I mean, it was very surreal. Blue skies ahead and dark skies behind, you know? And so I'm looking at the image in my past, the image behind me, the image in my side-view mirror. And I said to myself and said out loud to my wife, I'm never going back. I'm never going back. Hell on earth, I'm never going back. And then God directs my eyes to the words, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. It was one of those surreal moments that God said, Son, you see what? was in your past, go back to doing what you were doing and it'll be in your windshield. And it was one of those turning points in my life. And I said, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to educate kids. I'm going to have to educate families. And so now that's what I do literally in some way, shape or form, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I'm doing something to try to make a difference and, and serve people, educate people about addiction.
0: Wow. Uh, That's yeah, an
2: incredible uh, it, story.
0: Anybody listening to the podcast, I can't believe that they have, like, a more riveting story than that. And so I think just you talking to us today and I think the people that listen to us are going to, you know, are definitely going to... I think they'll get help after listening to your story. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Listen, I, I hope they will. Here's the thing. there's a There's a handful of haters out there. I mean... Uh, people who just kick my back in and, you know, oh, that's the guy who murdered his mother, you know? I get it. I was on the front page of the New York Times. I had a woman a couple months ago uh, tell a principal, um, you know, I shouldn't be hired because I murdered my mother. And the principal said, what are you talking about? And so she pulls up an article from the New York Times where I pled guilty. And it said, son, pleads guilty to murdering his mother on Mother's Day. And I was sentenced to 20 years. The 20 years was just for the newspapers. It was a five-year sentence. I mean, that's what I got, and that's what I did, right? So she calls me up, and she says, could you tell me about this? And a very troubling article. And I asked her, are you in front of a computer right now? She goes, yeah, I'm at my desk. I said, pull up my website. And she pulled up my website, and you see, see up there at the top where it says about our founder? Yeah, open that up. And she opens it up. And I said, scroll down on my story. And she scrolls down, and in the middle is a link to that New York Times article. I said, click it. And she clicked it. And I said, is that the article that you're looking at? She goes, yeah, it's the same article. I said, yeah, it's on my website. You know, there's nobody I have ever met in my entire life that would do what I do facing the ridicule of people who have their doubts. I mean, no matter, someone who's falsely accused of a of a, a sexual assault and then the girl, you know, changes her mind and she comes clean, right, or the guy who uh, comes clean, that person is stigmatized and questioned forever. I pled guilty. So if people think I did it with my own two hands, That's their issue I didn't it doesn't matter that I didn't do it with my own two hands I'm responsible for it. I might as well have done it with my own two hands It would have never happened if it wasn't for me the involvement I had with these Gangs the drug addiction I caused it and so I'll go to my grave knowing I'm the cause of her death so here's the thing I could get out of prison I'm not on parole. I don't have any obligation. I could move somewhere, change my name, uh, and never utter a word about the story again and live a normal life. And nobody would ever know. Why would I put myself through this? Why would I put myself through this? I'm putting myself through this because I have to serve God. I have to serve my mother in her memory. I have to serve my wife who waited 12 years for me. I have to serve my kids who waited for me. And I have to serve society. And at the end of the day, I lay my head on the pillow, and I ask myself, did I do everything I could have done to make a difference? And, of course, the answer is always no. (laughs) I could have always done more. No matter what I did, no matter how exhausted I am, I could have always done more. And I just make a promise to myself every night, when you get up tomorrow morning, do more. And every day, I just try to do more. So I have haters. I have people who believe I actually did it. And whether they do or not is irrelevant to me. Uh, Some people will never believe me. uh, And I, I, I I can't care. I have, to, I have to make a difference. We're going to lose over 125,000 Americans to an overdose this year. We're going to lose over half a million Americans to addiction. That doesn't even count cigarettes. And now we're setting our next generation up with alcohol and nicotine through electronic devices and vaping, and we're legalizing marijuana like it's still the same woodstock plant it was in the 70s, and it's nothing like it was in the 70s, and the cartels – have moved into cocaine and methamphetamine in a huge way. Heroin is on the downside because of fentanyl, and synthetic drugs are coming back in in China. And it's just kind of ironic that the same experience that I had getting involved in addiction is happening all over again, and no one gets it. Right. So no one gets it. You know, a couple months ago, there was 78 people that overdosed uh, on marijuana, K2, synthetic marijuana, in a park in Connecticut.
0: That's right. We talked about that on the podcast.
2: Okay, so it was a It was a synthetic poison that was imported from China. It is basically fentanyl in a different uh, chemical structure uh, that can be ingested through smoke. A lot of times people say fentanyl, uh, they're lacing marijuana with fentanyl all across the country, and that's not true. It's impossible because fentanyl cannot enter the system by being burned. It can You destroy the fentanyl. It won't go in your body. So the Chinese have figured out a way to take the drug and come up with a new synthetic drug fentanyl derivative that can be ingested through smoke so now it's like formaldehyde they're dipping the marijuana it's not even marijuana that they're dipping they're dipping some plant it's synthetic cannabinoids it's fake weed it's basically fake weed and they're importing it into the country and everyone's talking about that big incident in Connecticut, but that was the ninth incident of over 50 people in a mass overdose from marijuana, synthetic marijuana, that's happened in the last 12 months. I have nine different incidences, yeah. four in Chicago. I mean, they were bringing people into hospitals in Chicago and they were bleeding from ears and nose and mouth and nobody knew what it was and then they found a the synthetic poison. So I believe it's it, I, I believe it's a form of terrorism. I believe they're trying to implode this country through our drug supply in suburban and uh, rural areas um, and, our, and our urban communities. Uh, I believe it's going to get worse. I believe Pandora's box is open now with marijuana because it's no longer marijuana. It's genetically, you know, it's modified. Right. Um, we're in big trouble. And the biggest cartel of all. You know, not the Colombian cartel, Jamaicans and Dominicans, and not uh, Chinese and Russian. No, no, no. The biggest cartel in the world is the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, yeah. And... The drug dealers wear white lab coats and have stethoscopes around their neck, and we're literally shoveling psychotropic medication down the throats of nine-year-old children, eight-year-old children yes, we across are. the country, and parents want to trust their doctors. So we are setting an entire generation up for failure, and I feel God opened up the doors of prison to let me out for a reason. And um,
0: I would say I mean, so. I would say that's true.
2: Well, I'm at a crossroads because when I got out of prison, I went back into my industry. And my industry was the furniture industry. I was very successful in importing and exporting furniture all around the world. And I came home from prison. I was trying to make up for lost time. You know, I lost 12 years, and I needed to get back on my feet, and money was important to me. So I started working my behind off, and I was going crazy, and I was making money. And <clears throat> I had about 360 grand saved in a little under four years. I was working. I was very successful. And my best friend's daughter died of a heroin overdose in 2010. And it made me want to go back to become a drug counselor. So I went back to school to become a drug counselor. And in the beginning of 2012, I lost four kids on my caseload within 10 days of each other. Wow. And I was wiped out. And I made a documentary movie about it. And it's called Kids Are Dying. And um, it was 2012, and people weren't even talking about heroin. And I was on the streets of Camden, New Jersey, where I filmed this movie for 10 months. I interviewed 137 kids who were hooked on heroin, and I was trying to show America what's happening. And the people just weren't listening to me. Wow. I mean, I was saying, we're in the middle of a heroin epidemic, and they're like, heroin? What are you talking about? Now, here we are six years later. And uh, I don't know anybody that would argue that we're not in the middle of an opioid heroin epidemic, right. but we still have parents that want to tell themselves that won't be my kid. Right? I mean, that's not going to be my kid. You know, I am I, I'm, I'm in a, I, I basically have lived off my money for the, you know these years. I funded a nonprofit organization, startup, um, and now we're out of money. Me and my wife are out of money, and um, I'm trying to figure out how to keep it afloat I use the best educational material in the world, Drug Free World, um, educational booklets. Drug Free World is a nonprofit out of California, L.A., um, and it's just phenomenal um, educational materials, and kids are engaged. I had uh, two schools today. Um, I gave away over 800 uh, booklets uh a lot of the kids were asking for for booklets for their friend or you know one girl said I want I, you have an extra booklet I'd like to send it to my cousin uh I said oh yeah where's your cousin she's like he's in uh Mississippi he um he's uh smoking weed and he thinks it's no big deal and I want to send this to him like it's incredible yep. so the feedback I'm getting is phenomenal and I just I just need to get in front of you know, bigger audiences every single day to make more of a difference, and I need to educate America. And so I'm hoping anybody who's, you know, listening to this um, that's struggling realizes that, listen, if I can go and beat, I put $3 million of heroin and cocaine in my arms. I destroyed my life, multi-million dollar corporation. Um, I died three times. I died two times in a hospital and in a car accident. And after I had relapsed, Uh, After I came home from prison and I was given 360 oxy, I relapsed on heroin. I overdosed on heroin three more times, and I was brought back in a hospital with a drug called naloxone. So I've been dead six times. Um, God has a purpose for my life. I would say so.
0: I would say that's true.
2: (laughs) If you're out there and you're struggling, I mean, you can get a hold of me. Reach out to me. If not me, ask someone. Get help from someone. There's great programs there's not all, you know, not every program is great, but there are great programs. If you're a parent that's struggling with a kid and you need to ask for help, you got you can't be worried about shame and, and stigma. You just can't. Uh, this is happening everywhere. Um, if you're a kid and, you know, you, you're thinking about, you know, vaping and fitting in, uh, you know, marijuana is no big deal because, hey, it's legal. It's not legal for you. Right. Right. Um, mm-hmm and just stay away from it so I have I have four documentary movies um, on addiction and recovery I have two more coming out I have an internet show called on the road to recovery that's at recoveryarmy.com we have a tv show that we shoot in Philadelphia called road to recovery and uh, I'm just trying to make a difference so I need help I need support um, I need to get into your school
0: I think you're making a huge difference Michael I really do I I it, to come back from everything you've been through and just have one goal to give back to people and to help people. I think, I think it's laudable. I really do. I think, you know, I, I applaud what you're doing. I think you're making great strides in the whole area of addiction and we all need to, I, I mean, you inspire me to definitely do more <laughs> for sure.
2: Um, you know, that, w- w- what you just said, if you were sitting next to me, you'd see the hair on my arm stood right up when you said that I have goosebumps because that's all I care about. All I'm doing is I'm just trying to get people to do more. I hate when people say, gosh, someone should do something about this. Well, you're someone. Yeah. I'm someone. So don't wait for someone to do. Be the change you want to see. Do, I'm All I'm trying to do is inspire other people to do more. I think that's why God gave me the gift Gave me the gift of short sleeping. I sleep three hours a night, and um, that's it. And I, 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 he gave me unbridled energy, and uh, he gave me, a, you know, a mission. And I have such a passion for my purpose, and so um, I just want to serve, and I just want to. I guess the I, I want kids to grow up to be anybody but me. <laughs> I just don't want a kid to grow up to be me. And I mean, most people would never say that. They want their kid to grow up to be them or better than them. I just want kids to grow up to be anybody but me um i just i appreciate you saying you know um you know what i'm doing is great is everything but just remember i was a pretty horrible person and the whole reason my mother's gone is because of me and i i have a wife i've been married to for 26 years and 12 of those 26 years of marriage she was married to a number and she got to visit her number every sunday for an hour in a prison visit hall my kids i failed them I failed everybody. I was a horrible, horrible person. So, I mean, I'm doing good, but I'm making up for a lot of bad. But know? here's the
0: thing, so. and I'm just going to say this to you. I, I understand how horrible all of that is, but it's in the past. And what's important is what you do going forward. And what you are doing every day and going forward I'm sorry, that's a good thing. And so I'm not going to dwell on the past and you're not really dwelling on your past. You use it to get people to understand that you know from where you speak or from whence you speak because you've lived it, you've been there. It can't have gotten much worse than what you've been through. And where are you today? Uh, And what are you doing today? Now, Michael, if people want to find you, what's your website? How can they find you?
2: Steered, the past tense of steer, steered, straight, S-T-E-E-R-E-D, steeredstraight.org. Okay. And um, the, t- the TV show is a link off that. The internet show is a link off of that. Um, are the documentaries and, uh, on there somewhere? I'm sorry? Are the
0: documentaries on there somewhere?
2: Yeah, all four documentaries are on there. Okay. They can be downloaded. Um, we have DVDs for people who are old school like me, like got DVD players. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have an 8-track player, so I guess I'm really old school. But um, I have DVDs of them they can order, or they can just download it. Um, and, uh, I, you know, our, we're really – there's a lot of speakers in the country that speak and go tell kids a story. And I tell people, we've got to stop telling kids stories, because stories don't mean anything. You have to teach a story. You can't tell a story. So with Drug-Free World and with um, the other ten modules that we've developed – um, we're making a huge difference, and we're really affecting change, and we're really um, educating kids and families. So, like today, I did three schools. I have a big parent community event tonight. We're just trying to reach as many people as possible. I, I've been in, I do about 150 prisons a year. Uh, county jails, state prisons, and federal prisons, and some people do, don't understand that. You know, you spent 12 years trying to get out of prison, now you spend every day trying to get back in. Um, because I want to go show those people that they, they don't have to live like that anymore. Right. I want to tell every inmate and every prisoner that there's, there's a way to happiness. I give out booklets called The Way to Happiness to all these inmates and prisoners all around the country, and I show them, listen, li- just think, think about my story. The next time you get out of jail and someone slams a door in your face uh, because, you know, you're an ex-con and they're not going to give you a chance, think about me. I'm the guy who pled guilty to the murder of his mother on Mother's Day, and I won't let that stop me. So if you can carry baggage bigger than that, well, call me up and we'll figure something out. But until you, you got baggage, I don't know. I mean, people won't give me chances all the time, but when a door slams in my face, I look for another door. You know, and if that door slams in my face, that's not the door God wants for me. There's a door somewhere else, you know. So um, org is our mission. I mean, I my, my, my I guess, downfall is I don't like asking people to support me, and I don't like asking for money. I I just don't. I hate it.
0: I don't want to ask anybody
2: for anything. I want to figure out a way to just make this work without asking people to support it, but now we're done broke and i don't know what to do so we're we're I'm, i need help there's a donate button on there i don't care if someone gives 5 dollars or I'm trying to get Jeff Bezos to write me a check, but um, I can't get a hold of him. Oh. So,
0: um, <laughs> well, maybe somebody that knows him is listening to the podcast and, and can
2: listen, I will never. I out. will at 100% of the money goes towards this mission, educating kids and inspiring kids and telling addicts and prisoners and ex-cons and convicts to turn their life around and showing them that there's a way to happiness. Uh, it's just all about mankind, serving mankind. 100% of everything goes to that. We have very low administrative costs, very low, like Twelve percent. Uh, I have an office with three girls and phone lines and postage. That's it. And uh, in New Jersey, and um, we're moving. We're actually moving to Nashville, Tennessee, to save money,
0: right?
2: Uh, because it's, it costs it costs half to live in Nashville, Tennessee, as it does in New Jersey. So we're literally relocating our whole life to move to a place that where we can you know live cheaper. So um, I won't let anybody down. Anybody who. Uh, anybody who, you know, supports this, I won't let anybody down. This podcast, this time you've spent with me, uh, you two have spent with me, is so appreciative. Uh, I won't let you down. Um, I let so many people down for so many years because of my addiction, and I will not let anybody down again. I just won't. I won't. Oh, my goodness,
0: Michael. I, can't, I just can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us. I, it,
1: Unbelievable. It,
0: thank you. I mean, just thank you for Absolutely. everything you're doing.
2: Thank you.
1: Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I can't I would say the same thing. That's an incredible I, story. Yeah. I, and, and keep doing what you're doing because the more you keep doing it, the more you can affect the change and the more you can affect the change, the more we can change the world and hopefully prevent people from getting yeah. on drugs
2: in the first place. Exactly. If anybody's out there struggling, you know, I don't care whether they have insurance or not, I mean I can help anybody. Uh, anybody who needs help, uh, that they want help. I can't help people, and I don't think anybody can help people don't that want don't want it. That's help. right. But they want help, and I don't care what time of the day, day of the week, day, uh, week of the year, man, uh, I can help. But like you just said, um, it's about prevention and getting these kids to not get started uh, in the first place. And it might be a folly, it might be an unrealistic goal to have a drug-free world, But it's still my goal, you know? It's still my goal. So I'm going to do everything I can to, you know, build a drug-free world and serve mankind. It's a good goal.
0: It's why Jason and I do what we're doing. We're not going to get rich off this, and that's not the point. The point is to get the word out, get people to you know, understand this problem, do something about this problem, and for people who already have the problem to get them help. And so that's right. that's the whole purpose. Michael, once again, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: And if- Absolutely. I really appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. Absolutely.
1: It was wonderful to hear your story and so glad you're doing what you're doing.
2: Thank you very much. Let's talk anytime.
0: Absolutely.
2: Oh my god. So that was that
0: was uh, the that most is- amazing, riveting story we have ever had on the podcast. I don't think there's a whole lot we need to say about it. He echoed so much of what we've already said. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're listening and you have somebody that's uh, close to you that's addicted or even if you don't, you need to do something about this problem. This problem is just it's not just Jason's problem at Narcanon. It's not just my problem and it's not just Michael's problem. And it's everybody's problem. And there's something that we can all do about it. Once again, Michael's website is Steered, S-T-E-E-R-E-D, straight, steeredstraight.org. Check it out. Jason and I will be here next week. Next week. And we'll talk to you again.